Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Wayne Young with Port of Harlem Talk Radio, and I'm publisher of Port of Harlem Magazine. If you want to call in tonight and listen, the number is 516-531-9540. And once you're connected and you want to ask a question, just press 1. And please be quiet or have not have been a quiet place, please. Of course, you can also visit portofholland.net and click Port of Holland Park Radio from the menu to hear this and past shows. And lastly, We Talk Productions is sponsored by, I'm sorry, Port of, We Talk Productions sponsors Port of Holland Park Radio. But tonight, uh, first of all, on the first 30 minutes, we're going to talk to Boston native Rick Murphy, who is a genealogical researcher, educator, historian, and author of several books and historical publications, including The Arrival of the First Africans in Virginia. His family lineage, his own family lineage, dates to the earliest colonial period of Plymouth, Massachusetts, and Jamestown, Virginia. He is also vice president of history with the African American Historical and Genealogical Society, or sometimes called AUGS, A-A-H-G-H-S, and we will explore the upcoming AUGS conference that will be virtual this year. How are you doing, Rick? Wayne, I'm doing great. How are you doing this evening? Good. Good to talk to you again. Um, Thank you. Again, good. you're with AUGS, uh, or AAHGS, or the African American Historical and Geologic Society, and um, you all have become experts in putting on physical conferences during the past 40 years. I think it's 40 or 41 years. But the question is, are you ready for your first virtual conference, and what can attendees expect to receive? Well, you know, uh, Wayne, you're absolutely correct. We, we've had 41 conferences um, in our existence. Um, our conferences are interesting, exciting. We bring people um, from all over the country. Uh, we have scholars, historians, um, educators, genealogists, um, uh, men and women from the military to make presentations relative to African-American history um, and African-American genealogy. This is our first year going virtual um, out of abundance of caution for our members, exhibitors, and our guests. Uh, we decided in, in mid-April to make it a virtual conference. Um, so we're really looking forward to um, providing um, exciting information um, new DNA techniques and tricks. Uh, we're looking to bring on board a number of historians that will be bringing information um, that will resonate with our audience. We have a number of major family presentations where different families will document um, their ancestry to the 1600s. So we really plan on bringing a lot of expertise to the table, a lot of new knowledge, and some really exciting speakers and panelists. Well, Rick, I tell you, I was at last year's conference in College Park, and for the time I was there, I was awed by the expertise. I mean, I enjoyed the heck out of it. And I'll tell you, one of the stories we covered in Port of Harlem at portofharlem.net, and it's still on the web, was a story that we got not from the conference. And I'll talk about some stories, or we hopefully could talk about some stories that we developed out of the conference. But one was at the Netherlands um, Embassy. Actually, I yes. didn't know you were going to. I didn't know you were going to be there, and your coworkers or your 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 co your 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 your, your co members. I didn't know you all had anything to do with it. But it, the story we end up writing is called "The Netherlands Search for Relatives of 172 Buried Black Liberators," and that yes, article yes. mentions mentions all involvement with the government of the Netherlands to find the descendants of 172 black veterans buried in the Netherlands. Can you tell me more about all's involvement? Well, you know, AUGS is, a, is an organization that's on the move. Uh, we were contacted, uh, well, I was contacted uh, by the Embassy of the Netherlands, um, and the initial contact was, could we offer any service? And I told them, absolutely. Um, so what we've done is um, many of our chapters and chapter presidents have opened up the files and the vaults and have done everything that they could and have done to connect those 172 um, heroic men who went overseas during World War II, unfortunately died to, to protect the freedom of those in the Netherlands, um, 
And while the Netherlands have done a phenomenal job in burying them, protecting them, um, and making sure that the school children um, in their surrounding areas know who they are, many of them have been lost in history. Many of the family members um, could not afford to go over there in the past. Um, many could not afford to go there currently. So what we've done is we try to connect those families with their practical over excellence. So that's part of, of, of what we've done. Um, I think of the 172, we probably have connected close to 100 families, um, and we're still in the process of researching as much as we can. We now have pictures. We now have family stories. We now have heirlooms. Um, and the residents uh, in the community in which this cemetery um, is held, they're absolutely overwhelmed by how much information we were able to bring to them. And the families themselves here in the United States are overwhelmed to be able to connect, be connected with their ancestors or their loved ones. Yeah, I was overwhelmed by the amount of information they presented on these people and how well they documented these, these findings on the web. But without scaring me too much <laughs> into how much work was involved, can you just take me maybe like two minutes' worth of the nitty-gritty work you had to do to even find this information? Well, what was, what was interesting is when the Netherlands presented this to us, um, they gave us their names, um, and for the most part, they were able to give us the city and state's that they believe that these, these heroic men um, uh, came from. Um, Og's members, we know genealogy. We know how to dig. We know how to find. We know how to go through the files. We know how to, to go down in the basement of archive find stuff. And, and that's what our members did. Um, we were assisted by another organization who was able to pull the pension records, the military records. Um, and from that, um, we literally look for birth certificates, death certificates, marriage certificates. We look for census records. We look for street indexes. We looked at phone books. We looked at any and everything we could um, find um, uh, or that was necessary to help find and locate these men. And then after we did that, uh, meaning you know, we try to find where they were in the you know early 19, late 1930s, 1940s, um, and then we started looking for their descendants, um, their sisters, their brothers, um, anything that we could find to help connect those families. Um, so we did um, a lot of genealogical research in terms of census records, in terms of newspapers, in terms of, of death certificates, because oftentimes their parents may have died in the 1950s or the 1960s, and their son might have been listed um, in the newspaper article, which helped us to make connections. Um, so there were a lot of different things that we did, um, our chapter presidents and the members of, of, our, of our committees, um, to, to do what was necessary to help make those connections. Well, I tell you, I was, I was a very proud person that day at the Netherlands Embassy to see what they had done and see what you see how much involved you all were. But moving on to the next point, um, well, before we go on, again, if you want to read the story, you go to portofholland.net, and I think if you just search the Netherlands, it, the story will come up. It's a very good story. But moving on to the next um, point. But wait, is, wait, 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 if I can do this, I, I think ahead. it's important that your audience understand that the majority of these men came from the segregated South. And coming from the South, um, um, they joined the military, they joined the army to go overseas to help liberate people. And those that did not die from their regiments came home. And those veterans who came home, who went overseas to liberate those in the Netherlands, came back to the segregated South and were not treated um, the way that they should have been. So this really is a story of, of bravery, of heroism, uh, determination um, in trying to help liberate people. And I guess the second part of that story is many of those men came home and began to liberate their brothers and sisters in the South. So it's really an interesting story. Yes, it is. So um, you also mentioned that you traced your own lineage to 1619 Jamestown. So what do you know about this 
ancestor or ancestors that came here in 1619? Well, well, unfortunately, since this is a short show, I'll give you a short answer. Um, <laughs> uh, my, my, my family became embroiled in a lawsuit where we had to document um, family relationships. And out of that lawsuit, the family became very interested in hearing oral history of our elders. Um, there were no, this, this was in the late 70s, early 80s. And there were a number of our, our elders who themselves were in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. And they were able to tell rich history of their grandparents and great-grandparents, which took us to the early 1800s. Now, the reason why that's important is they had very critical names they knew where the families lived. They knew about land that they owned. So we followed the land records from one generation to another generation, and what we found was documentation that documented our ancestors going to the original Angolans that came here in 1619. So I descend from John Gowen and Margaret Cornish, um, and they're, well, they're now well-documented. Now, we did, when I did this in the 80s, Nobody knew who they were. They didn't know their names. But lo and behold, all that documentation is found in the colonial records in Virginia, along with five or six other countries around the, country, around the world because of the circumstances in which they came here. But in my particular family, the land records took us to John Gowen's grandson and then a number of lawsuits that took place in the 1630s and the 1640s made the connection all the way to John Gowen, and we now know that he came from Cabasa, Angola, and arrived on um, August 25th, 1619, and was part of the 60 Angolans that were captured and kidnapped from the San Juan Bautista by two English pirate ships. Okay, and, and, and between 1619 until the 1980s, it's a huge gap. So at some point, did you have a big hump you had to get over? and find and making the connection? Well, I know there are most of us who run into what we call uh, the brick wall, uh, where you run into a particular problem. My maternal grandmother knew her maternal grandmother, and her maternal grandmother was Harriet Going. And my grandmother, who was, who was born in Massachusetts, would visit her grandmother and relatives every summer. And that land stayed in the family since the 1700s. And as a result of that, we had, we had the land deeds. So each generation, um, when the land was, sent, was given to the next generation, um, our ancestors almost did a genealogy in the land records. So fortunately gotcha. for me, it was very, mm -hmm. very lucky for me that mm -hmm. the land records is really what connected the generations. And the family lives on that same land in Fishing Creek Township in Oxford, Granville County, North Carolina. And that land's been in the family since 1748. So that would make your search a little bit easier than other people's. Well, it, it, it certainly made it easier. But when I did my research, that was back in the 1980s. That was before computers. That was before the Internet. Um, so this really was going document to document, um, and I physically went to the land courts in the, in the Register of Deeds to pull the records. So I don't want anyone to think that it was easy, because it certainly wasn't, but it was done before all the technology that we have today, and that's really what's helping so many people connect to their ancestors because of, of all of the technology that's out there, and so many of these records have now been digitized that it makes it easy for people to do their genealogical research. And that's why so many Americans of African descent are now connecting to their ancestors in the 1600s, 1700s. So, so did you ever run into any dead ends or was, or you didn't run into dead ends either? Um, no, I, I, I've run into several dead ends. Um, a good genealogist doesn't stop looking. So I'm constantly looking so do I have dead ends? Yes. I have dead ends, uh, particularly on my father's side, um, my father's father's people. There were circumstances there that made it a dead end. Um, and, and there are still, you know, in terms of 
you know, six or seven uh, great grandfathers or grandmothers, um, I still have dead ends. Unfortunately, those colonial records, um, they only list men, and very seldom do they list the women. So if they don't list the women, then you've got a dead end because you don't know who your, your grandmother's or great-grandmother's family is because her name is not listed in the records, and therefore her name has been lost to history. And I guess the reason behind that, that the women were unimportant or just considered what? Why were they, what was, I would hate to assume, so let me ask you, what was the thought behind not listing the women? Well, most of the time, the land was in the name of the husband. Mm -hmm. So we we think today of land and and home ownership um, in the name of the husband and the wife or the husband. In some instances, if the woman buys the land herself or the house herself, it's in her name. But that's not the way it was in colonial times. It was always in the name of the man. And his wife or daughters were not listed on the documents unless he willed it to them. And many times when they willed it, that's when you'll find the women's names. Oh, interesting. So um, I'm glad I didn't assume. But I guess the other part of it is about the dead end, is that when you were tracing your lineage to the 1619 people, were there dead ends on those lines? Yes, because um, um, on those lines, we find the names of the men but we don't find the names of any of the women. So even though we, so, so fortunately, my grandmother's grandmother was the first woman in that particular family line. So had my grandmother's grandmother come from different women, we would have never been able to find that line because it daughtered out. So when a family line daughters out, oftentimes you lose the name um, of your family members. Fortunately for me, they all were men until my grandmother's grandmother, which is my second great-grandmother. So I was lucky there. But, again, I don't know who any of the women are because their names are not in any of the documents. Gotcha. Uh, we published a couple of stories I mentioned earlier um, on a website from Lash's conference, and one of the articles was entitled, When Should You Use DNA Testing to Confirm Your Family History? Did you do any DNA testing to confirm your your findings? Well, you know, um, as a historian and genealogist, I know oral history is very, very important for genealogical research. But I also know that oral history can be very, very misleading because people hear stories wrong, people's memories sometimes are faulty. Um, so you can't always rely on um, oral history. And what happened for me is I had a healthy skepticism. So even though I found these land records, I still couldn't quite believe what I was finding. So about eight years ago, I did take a DNA test. Um, And like most Americans of African descent, I was very concerned about taking it. But my curiosity got the best of me. And when I took the DNA test, I was absolutely shocked that the DNA test matched the legal records that I had all the way back. So even my DNA, in terms of going to Africa, goes directly to that, that, that specific area that John Gowen and Margaret Cornish came from. And, and, and to me, in Angola, Kabasi, Angola, that's absolutely correct. So that just absolutely floored me because I, I couldn't believe that the DNA aligned itself um, with the legal documents that I found. And now that so many people are taking DNA, I mean, I've got so many of these cousins on my D, on, on those names that keep popping up. Um, and, and John Gowen and Margaret Cornish um, in 1642, which was probably the first divorce where there was a child custody dispute. And because of that child custody dispute is why the legal rec- records exist today. But Margaret Will you Cornish that again? had... Will you, will you hear that again? When John Gowen and Margaret Cornish got into their custody dispute, that dispute wound up in the legal records, and that's why we know so much about them. Yeah, what year was that? Margaret Cornish, 1642, 1642. Okay. Now, Margaret Cornish wound up having other children with the last name Cornish and Sweat. So not only am I related to Gowen's, I'm also related to 
thousands of sweat in Cornish descendants, which again verifies that Margaret Cornish um, was the wife um, and that that child that the two of them had together um, was was uh, my direct ancestor. Wow. So I guess you were awfully surprised that they had a custody dispute, or was that typical with what that period of time? No. That was one of the first ones in the colonial records, and I believe that the two of them, that was probably the first. He was probably the first man, um, and I've gone through a lot of colonial records. I've not seen any other colonial record, um, and there was a reason for that, which we won't go into now because uh, it take too long, um, but it was uh, there's about five or six different documents relative to that dispute. Um, and, and, and had it not been for that dispute, I would have never been able to know uh, who my ancestors were and then when they came here. So um, mm -hmm. that was most valuable. Well, we have about 10 minutes. If you have two minutes to explain one of them, that's fine. <laughs> um, if, you want to, if you want to shed some light on to why people would have yeah, a dispute. I'll share some light because many people know the story. Um, when John Gowen and his wife Margaret had their first son, his name was Mihel. And that must have been a very proud moment for John Gowen because the, the, for an African man to have his firstborn be an African son, most of us understand the importance of that. When they had their second child, it was a girl, and not that he was not proud to have a girl, but it became apparent that that child was not his. And the reason why it became apparent, because that child was interracial. Oh, okay. So it was clear that the child was not his. And as a proud father, he was very upset. So therefore, he sued his wife for the custody of his firstborn child. Very so now you can understand. So now you can understand why it was such a contentious uh, lawsuit, because that second child was, there was no way that second child was his. Okay, so nothing is new under the sun. Tommy? So nothing is new under the sun. No, nothing's moved under the sun. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> okay, another story we published uh, was called Afro-American Historical and Geological Society on Overcoming the 1890 Census Hurdle. Again, this is another story that we developed out of the conference from last year that anyone can go back to our website, portofholland.net, and read. And I think it shows how exciting the conference is for those who are really interested in researching. And in that story, the lady talks about um, retracing lineage first via the 1890 census and how it's a hurdle, I believe, because the census were destroyed that year. And she all talked about overcoming it. Uh, can you speak a little bit on that? Well, for African-Americans... Uh, well, let me, let me for for Americans, whether you're African American or European American, the 1890 census um, um, is problematic because I think something like 85 to 90 percent of the records were burned in a fire. Um, so it's it's challenging um, for those who are trying to connect 1900 um, with 1880. Um, you're missing that 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 20 year gap there. So there are a number of ways of, of rectifying that, but the largest for Americans of African descent is not the 1891, it's the 1871. That's the one that people should really be concerned about because that's and the first that? year, that's the first census after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And that's the first census where names of, of African Americans were listed. So prior to 1870, there most 95% of African-Americans were not listed in any of the census records. So um, um, if, if your ancestor was in his early 20s, might not be a big deal, but if you're trying to find out who his ancestors were, and if they don't live together, you can't find out who your ancestors are. So the 1871 is really the one that's problematic for most Americans of African descent because you cannot find your ancestors after that. In addition, many of the enslaved after the Civil War relocated. So you can't really tell where they originated from, what plantations they might have been on. So the 1870 becomes that brick wall that most Americans of, of African descent have because they can't find information prior to 1870. 
And that's one of the reasons why so many Americans of African descent are taking the DNA, because they are able to make connections with their relatives through DNA. So when you were doing your tracing for the people who were from Jamestown, was the 1890 or the 1870 census a problem for you, or did you rely on other records? Well, Jamestown was was a small island, um, and that small island, there were very few people who lived on the island. So it really was, so instead of saying Jamestown, it really was colonial Virginia. Now, if you were a landowner, you're, you pay taxes, so you're found in the tax records. Um, white women were not taxed, black women were. So you'll oftentimes see black men where they had to pay for their wives as well as their children for taxes. So during the 1600s, 1700s, and 1800s, you'll find them in the tax records. But if your ancestors were enslaved, you would not find them in the tax records. So yes, I was able to find documentation in the 1700s, 1800s, um, but not everyone is uh, is as fortunate as I was, and others who have been able to find it. And you say you were fortunate, and I guess you were fortunate again because you're saying that the area they lived in was smaller. Well, my my ancestors actually moved from Virginia in the early 1700s to North Carolina. Um, in North Carolina, as most of those colonial uh, colonies. I'm taxed, everybody. So if you were taxed, you you could be found. Okay. Just like today, so, you pay taxes, we can find you. Okay. So now what's the last stages for you all getting ready for the conference, and what day is the conference again? The conference is October 14th through October 17th. It's virtual. If you go to aahgs.org, you'll find all the information about our conference. You'll find who our speakers are. Um, We have some absolutely phenomenal speakers. You'll find our program schedule. You can register. We have a a virtual exhibition hall. Um, We're going to have panels. Some of our panels, um, um, I will be part of the Goen family presentation we will explain in explicit detail how five different family lines within the Goins family came together and did research to document um, our lineage to John Goen and Margaret Cornish. There's going to be the Cumbo family that's going to do a presentation, and there's another family where Gigi Best Richardson is going to do another family that came on the fortune in 1628. Our folks are finding stuff that no one ever thought could be found And the reason why that's important is we're helping to change history because the history we learned in school was a false narrative, and we now are providing documentation to show how important our African ancestors were in the building of this great nation. This is our nation, our country. We found it. We built it. And the economic system was built on the backs of our enslaved ancestors. So it's helping to change a national narrative. So do you have any thoughts on the president's recent announcement that he didn't want uh, certain types of history being taught um, in the federal government when they have these seminars on inclusion and diversity. Now, Wayne, you should have asked me that at the top of the hour, not at the bottom of the hour. <laughs> I, got a whole lot of, I got a whole lot of opinions of that. And what he really said was he said two things. He didn't want these programs taught in the federal government, but he was also going to defund um, state and, and, and local and county school uh, agencies if they taught it. Um, and I'm not sure why he would not want um, factual history to be taught. These documents are found in the colonial records. This is not reinvention. This is not fake news. This is not make-believe news. These are actual documents that people are surfacing. So uh, why in the world would you not want real history to be taught is beyond me. But that's just my 30 seconds. Had you caught me at the top of the hour, you would have gotten a whole lot more. Okay. I want to thank you so much. But our next guest isn't ready yet. So um, let me see if I can get a hold of him. Or let me ask um, you, I guess what he wants to do, though, it's not going to, may not really stick because if he, it will take a while for him to implement it, first of all. And second of all, I'm sure someone's going to sue him. And third of all, hopefully he's not even in office. <laughs> 
Well, I, I, I can't touch that last point. Um, <laughs> but I, but I, think, I, think your, I think your premise is one that many would agree with. Okay. Well, Rick, you know what? I'm going to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and for all of your information. You made me even more excited about the conference, and I look forward to seeing what happens this year. Wayne, thank you very much. I look forward to coming on your show again. But more important, I look forward to seeing you and your guests at our conference. And, again, that's aahgs.org, and go to the conference tab. Nice talking to you, Wayne. All right. Take care now. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, so next we have on board, let's see if we can get him on board. We've got Arlo here. Arlo Washington, are you there? I am. I am. How are you doing, Wayne? Pretty Thanks good. And I'm, and I'm going to be very biased at the very, very top because most of my listeners know that I'm very proud to be from the city of Gary, but also that my ancestral roots, like yours, are in Arkansas since at least emancipation. <laughs> Awesome, so it's always, awesome, man. So it's always good to have a Razorback on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, let me, here. So let me introduce to everyone Arlo Washington. He has been a barber for about 10 years. Well, he had been a barber for about 10 years when he founded a financial literacy nonprofit in 2008. Today, the nonprofit is called People Trust, and it's the only black-controlled financial institution based in Arkansas. People Trust serves the needs of people that traditional banks shun, but who still need capital without getting into debt traps. So if you're listening and you want to uh, dial in, you can dial 516-531-9540. And once you're connected, if you want to ask a question, just press 1, and that that let me know that you want to ask a question. You can also listen to us uh, by going to portofharm.net and clicking Port Harlem Talk Radio. For the menu, you can hear this and past shows. And lastly, but not least, We Talk Production sponsors Port of Harlem Talk Radio. So, Arlo, my first question is, we spoke earlier about barbers having a unique in our society by their knowing the problems of the people in the community. Some of them have become front yeah, you, 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 you brought that to my attention, and so did my older sister. But some of have become the frontline mental specialists, and others have become, mm-hmm. say, frontline HIV information specialists. Mm-hmm. How did you gravitate toward becoming a financial literacy, liter- literacy specialist? Well, um, Wayne, barbers deal, you know, historically have dealt in cash, cash money. You know, I cut your hair, and, and, and you pay me for the service. And so, um, you know, doing doing that 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 business and being in that industry, uh, you know, I realized the importance of, of 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 access to capital. And so, you know, that's you know, seeing that um, um, uh, trend happen, you know, from you know as as years went on. I've now been a barber for twenty years, and um, you know, I, I, I knowing how I was impacted by uh, not having the financial literacy. Um, as an entrepreneur early in my barber career, you know, um, that, that, that's what inspired me to want to be able to um, uh, create um, um, something that would be able to benefit my community uh, because there were others coming after me that I knew that, that were lacking as well in that area because it's financial education literacy is not taught in, you know, a lot of homes. It's not taught in school. Um, and, 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 and to be honest with you, a lot of times, you know, barbers make a lot of mistakes because they don't have um, the, 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 the financial literacy, the credit, you know, know about their credit and things of that nature to help them to be able to grow their business and, and scale it like other, other uh, populations are able to do. And so that's, that's pretty much, you know, what, 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 what gave me this, you know, the, the, the inspired me to be able to, to uh, offer that service to the community that we operate in, we made money from that community out of that community for for uh, a decade, and you know I'm like, well, you know, we're making money. You know, we didn't want to be uh, just a vampire sucking funds out of the community, but not being able to give back to the community. 
So in what way can we give back? You know, we have, uh, you, you mentioned about mental health and the uh, HIV awareness and things of that nature. And, and also uh, for, you know, tobacco, they, they do a lot of different things through the barbershop to reach the community. You know, the barber, you know, uh, the church would only be the only other outlet that would have the relationship that the barbershop has with the community. And so, um, you know, we're able to see a lot of things. You know, we're able to, uh, you know, a lot of times we may cut the kids' hair, we may cut the dad and the grandfather, so we may cut all three generations. And and just seeing and and hearing the different needs and, you know, um, people want to start businesses and people losing jobs, people getting jobs, and things that nature, you say, okay, well, this is something that really needs to be uh, in our community. You know, um, most of the, you know, the economic um, uh, uh, situation that people are in is because of a lack of financial education and literacy. So that's kind of the, give you a, a brief synopsis of how we how I was inspired to even get into this field. Yeah, I can see how you were inspired because you said you realized that you needed it and you began to learn it and you began to share it. And then when you began to mm-hmm. learn it, though, where did you learn it? How did you learn it? Well, I learned it by trial and error. You know, I you know I I I was a barber for two years after I graduated from barber college. Uh, never had any formal financial education, and um, you know I knew what it was like to be low and moderate income. Grew up in low and mo- low income community, um, and and I and I had a mother. My mother worked for a DH. You know, after she she went to college while we were living in the housing projects, so I saw her. Um, you know, going to school, single mother, three kids you know, struggling to get through college to show us that, hey, you don't have to stay stuck here. You can you can make it out of the projects. You can make it out of this, you know, uh, economic um, uh, uh, situation and, and better your life based on your, your education. And so, you know, I saw that, that hard work, um, you know, she would, you know, she worked for a year. After she graduated, she had to get experience. So she worked for DHS for a whole year, you know, in the foster care system, and she would wake up at three in the morning, and she go. We go pick up, you know, um, kids that needed to be rehoused, and and they would stay with us until they were able to be placed. And so I saw these things going up, and that really inspired me to want to, you know, be a community, uh, you know, activist in terms of making sure that, you know, there was equitable resources for. Yeah, but how did that? So, but, but, but where, how did you learn? But how did you start learning? Where did you start learning? Where did you learn financial literacy, though? Did you go to a class? Did you read books? Did yes, you I did. watch TV? I did. I did. I'm, I'm, yeah, you know what? Like I said, I you know I wanted to start my own business, so I needed a loan, <laughs> and uh, I didn't understand my credit, so I went and applied for um, a loan at a bank, and I was denied because of a low credit score. No credit, actually, I had no credit. So um, I then was trying to figure out how do I get credit? Where do I get credit? And it was hard for me to find out where you know where I could access credit. And and so I'm thinking, okay, what do I need to do? So I go and enroll in the bar in college, and I'm like, well, they're giving student loans out at the college. If I go get a student loan, maybe I can get a loan from there, and I can take the loan, and I can go open them up me a bit. I'll start my first barbershop, and that's exactly what I did. And and okay. then when I got the loan, I didn't pay the loan back, and I ran into default. So I fell in the student. I fell. I fell in default. So then I get married and I go to buy a home and then my wife and I are sitting at the table to talk to the bank about it and they say, oh, you got a default on your credit score. So stop me from buying a house. So at that point, I'm like, okay, I'm going to get the default fixed. I'm like, all right, this, this can't happen again. So at that point, I begin to really, really, really take my financial, uh, take control of my financial life and be more financially responsible and, and, and really, really, really just make sure that, you know, and so end up getting that default. And then I went to class, and then I went down the years, I went and enrolled into the national, I got it, so I'm a certified financial education instructor today um, by the National Financial Educators Council. And, and so, did, did, was, so it, was that class online or was it a brick-and-mortar place? No, it's online. It's online. Okay. It's online. Okay. Yeah, it's online. National Financial Educators Council. So we're, we're a certified financial education instructor. So it gives uh, designated C F E I. Okay, so it we, sounds we, like that. You know, so it's not like trial and error made you learn more, and then eventually you took a, a class. Experience, they say experience online best teacher, yeah. And mm-hmm. so that's that's what that, that's what kicked you that that's what kicked you in the butt a couple of times, huh? Yeah, man, I'm telling you, man. It's tough. <laughs> 
you know, it was tough, you know, and 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 then the notary, and then you know, once my uh, once I gained gained an understanding of my credit, and then my credit score started to improve, and I was able mm-hmm. to buy a home. You know, it felt good. It gave me a sense of uh, the American dream. You know, everything my mother, you know, she she ended up passing, you know, in my senior year of high school, and that really gave me more motivation and drive to and determination to succeed in life. And so, you know, I didn't go to the NFL, I didn't go to the NBA, and I wasn't a four-year college student, but you know, I, 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 you know, I, the gift that God gave me was through my hands, you know, through barbering. So, you know, and I, and I worked with what I had, and I'm, and, and, and here we are. Okay, so let me go. Let me start. Let me move on from you learning more about financial literacy through trial and error, and then finally taking the online course and being certified. Mm-hmm. And once right. your financial literacy program grew into a certified community developed financial, let me get that right grew into a certified community development financial institution, which is also called yes. a CDFI, in case anybody wants to look it uh-huh. up on the web, it's a CDFI. What new mm-hmm. opportunities became CD, available? CDFI.gov. Go to CDFI.gov. I'm sorry. Right. Go, go ahead. But once you got certified as a CDFI, what new opportunities became available? Well, opportunities, opportunities to help my community, you know, and, and, but, you know at scale. Um, and like for instance, uh, give me a friend. You said at scale. For instance, at what? Before you were making okay, loans. So, so and I guess I, I guess let me stop for a second because I missed I missed one little piece for our, our listeners. You were making loans okay. from the barbershop, small loans. But once mm-hmm. you became CDI, you were able to formalize it. But what else? Mm-hmm. Other types of opportunities became available for you to help the community. Well, um, the, to the, the you know the developmental services that we provide, you know, the financial education and technical assistance, and you know, experience is the best teacher. So, you know, by me being a small business owner, you know, putting me in a in a uh, prime position to be able to to talk to other aspiring uh, business owners. And so, the CDFI certification uh, it gave me it gave us a platform to be able to, and, and also it gave us access to to programs. Uh, that the Treasury Department offers, which are, you know, to be honest with you, before uh, we sought CDFI certification and became CDFI, we didn't know anything about CDFI certification. We didn't know anything about that. You know, that was like the only thing I knew about was banks and credit unions. Didn't know anything about a community development financial institution. And so right. once, you know, so once we began that, you know, in that, in that, in that pathway and, and, and got into that industry, then the more we began to learn and the more, um, you know, resources we're able to bring to low and moderate income communities that would not otherwise receive those said opportunities. And so, uh, for for where we, you know, where I grew up around, you know, you know, there, there, I have a lot of peers and colleagues that that didn't know anything about it, and still to this day, you know, you know, I can tell them about it, and it's like, well, okay, you know, they still never heard of it, but you know, so that's why we raise the awareness and try and everything. But anyway, the program. New market well, let me stop. program. Let me stop you for a second. Yeah. What specific? Can you give an example of a specific program you was able to start once you got the certification? Yeah. So a loan program, a revolving loan program. Uh, okay. We started. We started. We actually started the revolving loan program before we were CFI certified. We we made loans uh, because uh, in 2008 uh, we opened uh, we launched Washington Barber College, which is a, right. um, a post secondary institution. It's certified by the Department of Education, and and we offer and we are Title IV school, so we offer Pell grants and student loans. Okay, so that's what really got us into the lending side of it because we have to provide um, entrance counseling to the students that are okay. predominantly low low income, and so when we provide the uh, entrance counseling, has financial education inside of it, and so we began to see. Uh, one story, real, real, real quick story. We had a student, 35 years old, uh, reentry student, and he reentry means that he reentry means reentry means that he was in, incarcerated. Reentry right? means that he, he, he was he was previously incarcerated. Gotcha. Went to, went, went, to, went to prison when he was uh, 18, and he was okay. 35 when he got out, okay. like 34, 35 when he got out. Okay, and so he's never had any. He got his high school diploma from prison. Never had any gotcha. formal financial education. Gets out, knows that he loves cutting hair. Cut hair while he was in prison. Gets out, comes to Barber College, and he and, and and he needs financial aid to pay for to pay his tuition. He he sits down. We do interest counseling. He gets a refund check from his financial aid 
and he asked me, what do I do with the check? What do, you, what do I do cool. with this? I thought he was joking. I said, what do you mean? I said, what do you mean? He says, what do I, what do I, what do, I do with this? I said, you, I said, that's a check. You go to the bank and you cash it and you use it to help you while you're in school. And he says, man, I don't mess with banks. You know, I, I sold drugs all my life. I don't know nothing about banks. I've always kept my money in my shoebox. I've always kept money in my, under my bed. I've always kept money in my, you know, in, in hidden places, but I've never dealt with banks and I don't, and I don't go, I don't deal with banks. I'm afraid of banks. So I had to go to the bank with him, walk him in the bank, go up to the counter with him and assist him in cashing his check and showing him what a checking account was. He opened a checking account that day. Right. So, so that is when I came back and I told my staff, I said, Hey, you know what? We really, really, really got to drill down on this because these, you know, we don't want to graduate someone from our program. They get a trade, but then they can't be sustainable because they don't have the financial tools. Exactly. And so at that point, you know, we really started to ramp up our financial education to the students at the barber school. And said, well, how can we, how can they show us that they've actually ascertaining the information that we're giving them? How they, how can we, you know, how can we, how can we, how can we prove a concept? Well, let's make them a small dollar loan and see how they perform. Okay. So we start making loans. So out of my, so out of the profits from the barbecue, I took a thousand dollars a month, and we loaned out small dollar loans at two hundred and fifty a pop. And let me stop for one second. Let me stop for a second. In case our readers are getting sort of confused, our listeners are getting sort of confused. This is the barber college making loans to people before people trust became people trust. This the, the become right. certified as people trust is come second. This is when they're making loans mm-hmm. out of out of the out of the barber college. But keep going. So, 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 so then we're thinking, well, how can we show a tangible outcome? You know, something that people actually can see that this person started here and went here. How can we actually show that? So we say, okay, well, we report credit on these loans, then we can show by the credit score. So if the credit score is improved because of the good performance with the loan, then now they graduate the program with not only uh, improve not only with the trade to where they can go out credit score. also with an improved credit score and financial education to go with it. Right. So they're more, they're more of a whole person. Because, you know, financial education touches every part of our life, whether we know it or exactly. not, not just money. Exactly. I mean, you just gave a story how it cuts across everything, especially for someone who just came out of, in prison, out of prison, because if he doesn't do all these things correct, he can find himself back in prison. Absolutely. And, and so of this, course, if you are, in a, in a, you know, a lot of times, you know, it's hard to find a job when you're reentry because a lot of people don't, a lot of a lot of employers don't don't hire felons. Right. So a lot of felons have to have a have to get out and get a trade. To get out and get a trade, then they're able to make better choices in their life, provide for their families, and live a quality of life. And also save taxpayers' money. And pursue the American dream. And also save taxpayers money. And save taxpayers money, right. <laughs> Cut down on crime. <laughs> exactly. Make all of us safe. But uh, Arlo, I, I, I love the story. I'm not going to lie. I love the story. But I'm still going to get back to the question for you. Is on. that one, okay. one, one, once you started the program that you gave an example of with this one particular guy, and you became mm-hmm. certified, which means the U.S. Treasury Department said you're cool. What new uh-huh. opportunities were you able to provide this guy and other people? What new opportunities were you able to provide? Financial assistance, access to capital. Okay, okay so you got access to capital, meaning access to more money. Absolutely. To make a loan. And one of the things you to uh, make a in the article, and one of the things in the article that we published last week is that uh, we looked up that you got money from the Rockefeller Winthrop Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation. The Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation. So you wouldn't have gotten that money if you hadn't become certified, I guess. Well, uh, when we got, when we received, once we were certified, then we actually were making loans for a year after we were certified. Okay. Um, we were making loans prior to, and making loans. So we, we actually made loans for 24 months 
out of so we so so we're a small business owner working in the community, low income community, that no banks are located. We put a sign on the side of the building that says financial aid is available to those who qualify. And we okay. start getting people from the community to come and ask if they can get a short short term small dollar loan. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Our haircuts are five dollars for adults and three dollars for kids. So it's attractive to low and my low income but low income people. So they come mm-hmm. and they come to get the cheap haircut and they also and we're able to get a lot of data from that. We're able to see who's unbanked, who's unbanked, who's underbanked. Okay. You know? And so and so that, there's a lot a lot of insight there and a lot of, you know, reasons why people trust is co located with Washington Barber College. Okay, so but what the Rockefeller Foundation provide you? So the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation provided general operating support. They provide, continue to provide general operating support for, um, for our uh, organization. And what did they mean? And what But what did general operate? What was general? But what did general operating support mean? So uh, to build the capacity of the organization to be able to be sustainable. So um, is that there, like a device? Well, well, well. Tech, technical assistance, uh, support in terms of uh, capital that that we would need in order to lend or grant to the low-income communities. Okay. And when you say grant, that means you don't have to pay the money back. You don't have to pay a grant back, right? Gotcha. So some people, so are, some get... people won't qualify for a loan. Now, now, don't get me wrong, Wayne. We do have underwriting standards. Everybody won't okay. qualify for our loan. We do have underwriting standards, and we have underwriting criteria that we have to uh, follow in order to be sustainable because we don't want to provide a service and then a year later it's gone. We want to be able right. to be here from generation to generation to generation to be able to create, bridge the gap to creating wealth for low-income communities. Right. So, 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 so we have to have that. So, so we use an alternative credit scoring model. We don't use your credit score. We use your proof of income, proof of employment, proof of residence, verify your identification, verify your, uh, your, you know, that you have a, that you have a, uh, you know, you know, you have to have cell phones. Wait for us to get in touch with you because all of our um, funding is done electronically. Okay. So when the pandemic, when the pandemic hit, we made, we made, you know, we we've done this year already, right at six hundred loans. And so to, to low-income communities that would not otherwise have received the opportunities, folks with rent, helping folks with rent, helping folks with bagged-up utilities, helping people with, uh, you know, and maybe they've gotten furloughed and lost their, you know, you know hours have been cut on their job, things of that nature. They went from $100,000 a year down to $20,000, you know, just unemployment now. And so we've been able to be a financial first responder with the help of the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation, the Department of Treasury, CDFI Fund. Uh, Opportunity Finance Network, OFN, and we're also a member of organization African American Alliance of CDFIs, which is an organization of CDFIs led by um, 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 African Americans. Gotcha. Yeah, what amazes me, too, is when you tell that story there, is that you're making loans for people to do such basic things in life that so many people take for granted. And so, for instance, what comes to my mind is when Congress was arguing about whether or not to give people, I think it was either three hundred dollars or four hundred dollars extra for, I don't even say extra. I would say three or four hundred dollars for unemployment, and you're talking about people uh-huh. who need money just to pay rent and to buy tires. Yeah. And so yeah. you, and you so so, mm-hmm. so you specialize in in giving in providing people loans just to survive. Yes. Yes. As well as small businesses, Wayne, because a lot of those small businesses that are located in those low. Remember, I'm a small business owner as well, so mm-hmm. a lot of the challenges that small business owners that are located in these distressed areas, underserved areas, unbanked areas, underbanked areas, have a hard time accessing capital. Man, it's hard to build a relationship if there's no bank in your in your neighborhood that don't understand what you go through the the, the cultural difference. They don't understand the, the you know the fact that you know, everybody. <laughs> Or the economic difference. Thank you. The economic difference. So, so you know, there has to be a mechanism. You know, I hear you know a lot of times. You know, uh, you know, uh, you know. Uh, of course, Black Lives Matter movement, all this stuff. And 
it's not the uh, black or white thing. It's it's actually having a mechanism located with a financial mechanism located within a low income community to be able to responsibly, equitably deploy resources. If right. there's no mechanism, if there's no financial mechanism located in that community, then it's going to be hard to circulate critical resources to the people and to those small businesses. So that's what, that's, that's what we are. We're the financial mechanism. Well, what's one of the things that struck me most or the absolute most is, is, is your, your thoughts right there plus the objective of keeping pe- people out of the debt trap. Um, so I yeah. want you to talk a little bit about the debt trap. Explain the debt trap and how your lending terms try to keep people out of the debt trap. So we'll talk about the debt trap okay. and how you try to yeah. keep people out of the debt trap. And we have five more minutes. Go ahead. Okay. So, so, so when you say a debt trap, you think about uh, predatory payday loans, online predatory payday lenders. Provide access to capital to those that traditional financial institutions, banks, credit unions, would not loan money to at all, okay? So they are appealing to unbanked people because they give them an opportunity that, that they wouldn't normally get. But there's a, there's a uh, catch to it. I'm going to loan you this money, but I'm going to loan it to you, and you got to pay me back by your next paycheck, and the interest rate is going to be 400%. And it may even be 1,500% if you miss a payment. So what that does is you take somebody that's already economically distressed and in a financial crisis that need a lifeline, and here now you have this online predatory payday lender offering them money when they need it the most. They can't get it from family, can't get it from their church, can't get it from the community, so 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 they 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 get along, take out along with this person. Now with this with this with this organization, now it's online lender. Now all of a sudden, here you go. I mean, payday online payday lenders. All online lenders are not predatory. We're online, but we're not predatory. So we provide a safer alternative. These payday lenders, though, so they so so, so they're constantly adding in interest and and, and interest and interest because. Um, and, and, and they're in the, in the debt trap because once you pay your loan off, you got to get another loan to pay off a loan to pay off a loan to pay off a loan. Gotcha. And how are and you so different? You're constantly paying off your, what's that? And how are you different? We're different because we give a longer payback time, and we don't have the interest. You know, our interest our interest rates are set at seven point seven seven percent. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, if you go to most states that are banned payday lending, the interest rate for the pawn shop. Is two hundred and forty three percent, okay? APR. That's that's to me that's still still kind of high, right? It's still high, okay. But these are pawn shops which are collateralizing the loan, so you got to give them a give them a, a deed, a, a a title, or uh, you know uh, some something of value to get a loan. Well, with us, we don't require. Okay, we only have like I'm sorry, but we got thirty seconds left. But I guess in short, you're saying okay. that your, your 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 terms are better. And your interest rates are a heck of a lot and, better. And time, yes. And plus you provide uh, education. And your and education. Developmental services. And right. we report credit. So we're building your credit along with that. So your credit is building simultaneously while you can access the capital and financial education. And you gotcha. got a partner in your corner to work. But you, got, you got somebody to turn to, somebody you can trust, people trust. And I think also the education you provide is just, is just invaluable. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Education, education is the key to success. So you have suggest- that, if, if, if you know, if you know better, you can do better. Okay, um, Arlo, we we'll probably have you back again, hopefully, and we want to know about even sure. investing inside your business. So we'll talk about that later. Absolutely. But right now, absolutely. people go to portafarm.net. You will see his story there. You will see links to people trust. Trust is in Little Rock, Arkansas. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Love it. Okay, Arlo. Thanks for being so inspirational. Thanks for having and, me. And thanks for and, all and your they, explanation. They can, find, they, can find, they can go to our website too, uh, www.peopletrustloans.org. www.peopletrustloans.org. Gotcha. Thanks so much and have a good night. Thank you so much.
You do the same. Thanks, Wayne.